Well, good morning again. We're going to be in John chapter 19. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. Go ahead and make your way to John 19. And let me just say uh, welcome to all the visitors that are here or tuning in online. We're glad that you're visiting. Stick six weeks with us. So we encourage you to do so we can get to know you. You can get to know us a little bit more as a church to see if this is where God desires for you to partner with. And I'd also like to encourage all the dads whose moms are our wives are away at our women's retreat right now, 60 plus women there, which is great. So I know a lot of you dads got up early this morning, helped the kids get ready, and you're here. And so we're just grateful for that intentionality to serve and to lead your family well this morning, especially as we come to John 19, because all of Scripture is pointing to this moment, to the cross that we're going to look at today, and then next week, the resurrection. And so this is a very, very important passage for us to, to consider and to think on this morning. So as John has already stated at the very beginning, as he's writing his gospel, that Christ is the Lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world. And what we're going to see in John 19 is this Lamb being slain for our sins so that we could be saved. This is a beautiful passage. I'm excited to dive in. And let's start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 30 today. John 19, verse 1. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews. And they struck him With their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Talked about that last week, the innocence of Christ. Verse 5 So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. The chief priests and the officers who saw him, they cried out in response, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves, crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He says it again. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Then Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless that had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat, the place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus 
And they went out bearing his own cross to the place that was called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written... I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, and this tunic was seamless, women in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophus and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that All was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's the word of God. Pray with me this morning. Lord. As we look at this passage, we first praise you for the great price that you paid for our sins. Lord, you had no sin, you were guiltless, you were innocent, and you took on our sin in our place. And so we thank you for this grace that you give us. That if we can confess our sin, that you and your gracious grace will forgive us. Lord, help us today as we we read this passage and we look at the most important time in history, the cross and the next week, the resurrection, that you would help us to understand what our sin deserves and also at the same time to understand your great grace towards us. Now let me ask you to pray right now in this silence, to pray that God would allow you to see what he desires for you to know about him and about yourself through this passage today. Would you pray right now? Lord Jesus, hear us as we pray to you this morning. And would you speak through weakness Help us to believe in you and find life in your name through this passage today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. If we could this morning hop in our time machine, let's get in our DeLorean, and we go back to uh, the 1990s when uh, computers are starting to come on the scene, right? They're starting to be made, and 
you look at some of the very first computers, how massive they are, and we're in our time machine, we go back and we start to talk and interact with people at that time, and we tell them, hey, I know that you're building these computers, and you're trying to do all this stuff, but one day we're going to have computers that can fit in our phones, or fit in our pocket, our phones, right? We can take it everywhere with us. Just It's that small, and we can find everything we need to on this thing called the World Wide Web. And these people in the 90s would look at their computers and be like, are you crazy? There's no way this is ever going to fit in our pocket. How in the world is it going to get from this to what you're saying, right? How does that happen? And then if we hopped in our DeLorean and we went back to the early 1900s and we talked to somebody on the Ford automotive assembly line. These people are building cars and we tell them, hey guys, I'm loving how you're working and you're building these, these cars, but in the future we're going to have cars that can park themselves, cars now that can drive themselves. Uh, We've got air conditioning. They'd be like, what's air conditioning? We don't even know what that is. That's not going to be invented for another 40 years, 50 years. And, and yeah, there's a little button you can press to start your car up for some people. I mean, these people at this time on the similar line would be like, how? How in the world are we going to move from this thing right here to what you're describing to me in the future? Now, if we could go back in our DeLorean one more time and go to the first century, and we talk to the people in Rome, we talk to citizens, and we talk to leaders, and we say, hey, hey, you know in your culture you have this thing called a, a cross? They'd be like, yeah, I mean, that thing is it's, it's intimidating. It strikes fear in our people. It's what helps people know the law and stay in line. And if we were to talk to one of those Romans and we said, yeah, that thing, what you see as intimidation we now look at as an invitation from God. That thing which you look at and you see as a shameful, horrific thing, we look at now as our hope and our peace. Those people at that time in the first century would be like, how? How in the world could this death tool ever be seen as something as hope? And that's what I want us to see in this passage today. How? How can we look at something so horrific as this moment right here and say that this gives us hope and this gives us peace? How in the world can we say, no, this is not, no longer an intimidation thing for us? When we see a cross, we're not intimidated, and yet we see it as an invitation for God to come to him. How? How is that possible? As we read John 19, he's going to tell us. He's going to lay all this out for us to understand how the cross can go from one moment of despair to a moment of hope. Now, this is a heavy passage, I get it, but if we don't understand the bad news first, we'll never understand the good news, and never understand our need for the good news. And the bad news is this, as we look at the crucifixion, as we look at the cross, what we see is the curse of our sin. And this curse is a costly curse. I want us to grasp that this morning, the costly curse for our sins. You have four Gospels, and every one of them include the crucifixion. With all of these details and spill all of this ink, writing all of this down, why? Why is there so much detail included in the crucifixion? He could have just said, and he crucified him and moved on. Well, I believe that John uses all these details with intentionality. He's using all of these details to help us understand the curse of our sin. 
Now, if you're not new to the Bible, I want to help you understand this because this is important. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis, when sin enters into the world through Adam and Eve and their rebellion and disobedience to God, this curse now enters into our world and impacts our entire world and it impacts all of humanity. And what we find all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3 is what we find here at the cross. And it's so important that we understand this because all these details are highlighting that Christ has taken on our sin for us. Let me show you what I mean. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 3 verse 10, after sin has entered into the world, what you see is shame for the very first time. Adam and Eve are hiding from God. They are now terrified. They're not just hiding from God, but they actually sew fig leaves together to hide from one another. There's a sense of shame on Adam and Eve that they'd never experienced before sin entered the world. But you also see another curse from sin, from the fall, is now there's thorns and thistles in this world. Our sin didn't just impact us personally, it impacted creation. So much so that the New Testament is going to say that creation is crying out, God, please come back. Would you return and fix all of these broken things? We see that in Genesis 3, that there's thorns and thistles. There's also death. They experience death. Yes, spiritually, but the first death they ever see, the first death that we ever find in the history of the world is a murder. One brother murders another brother. There's death in this world. This is a consequence. This is the curse of our sin. There's also a separation that we see. Adam and Eve are forced to leave the garden. Now they're separated from God. They used to walk with God. They used to talk with God throughout the day. And now they are separated from him. They can't walk in his presence like they used to. Now, every single one of these that we find in Genesis chapter 3, we find here at the cross. Did you see this? What John is helping us see, as well as the other gospel writers, is that the crucifixion is the pinnacle of Christ becoming the sin for us, taking on the curse in our place. Think about it. Christ takes the shame that we deserve. You see this in the first three verses that I read. They, 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 they mock him. They, they beat him. They, they make fun of him by saying, oh, if you're the king, let's, let's bow down to this king of the Jews. There's shame in this moment. There's also a purple robe that they put on him. And not because they really believe that he's a king, but he's been flogged. So there's, there's literally his back has, has been ripped and torn up and they put this robe on him so that when it sticks to him, they can pull it off again and hurt him. Did you see the crown of thorns placed on his head? They put this crown of thorns on his head to mock him. But remember, there were no thorns before sin entered the world. And now you see thorns and those very thorns that were mentioned in Genesis 3, are now placed on the head of King Jesus. He's bearing the shame in the crucifixion. See, Jesus didn't just go to the cross and die. He was shamed. He was humiliated. 
this is what our sin deserves. This is what our sin deserves. And, and shame is one of the worst feelings you can have. You can all go around the room and just pause and think for a second of when we were embarrassed or when we felt humiliated or shamed. We can think about that moment. And that's, that's a heavy moment. That's a terrible feeling to have. And that's what we see Christ bearing on the cross. It's not just that he died, but he took the curse of our shame for us because of our sin. But he also died in our place. He died. Verse 18 says they crucified him. They crucified him. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians about 700 B.C., so 700 years before Christ was born. But it was perfected by the Romans. And the reason why the Roman Empire chose to use crucifixion as a death penalty is because it was the most painful way to die. In fact, Romans had a law that no Roman citizen could be crucified. They could die by other means if they broke the law, but they could not be crucified because it was so terrible. It was such a horrendous thing that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. Even for us today, the, the word crucifixion, what we get in our English, comes from excruciating. Excruciating. This word excruciating means from the cross. From the cross. This is a terrible thing. And the way that he died was not privately over in a corner. It tells us in this passage that it was outside the city. That people would walk by and read the sign above his head. They would see him. See, crucifixions were done not in private places but public. So it would strike fear and intimidation into the hearts of people to say, maybe I don't want to break the law. Maybe I don't want to go against the Roman Empire. So when they crucify Christ, you can picture it like being crucified right here at 485 and 85. Where everybody that drives by would see those people there. And this is the kind of death that Christ bore for us. It's a terrible time. It's a terrible death. This is what Christ did for us. This is what our sin deserves we see death in Genesis 3, and we see Christ dying in our place. But much, much worse than the shame and humiliation that Christ took, or even the death that Christ took for us, is the separation that Christ took for us. The very end of the passage I read in verse 28 Christ cries out from the cross, and he only says seven things that we know of from the cross, and one of them is the words, I thirst. I thirst. Now, when you read the, the Bible, every time this thirst is used in the Old Testament, it was to talk about people who were longing for God, who were separated from God. So if you go and you read the Psalms, many times it will say, my soul thirsts for you. Jeremiah and Isaiah will talk about it in their letters where they're like, I'm thirsty for the Lord. I feel, I feel thirsty for the one who can only satisfy my soul. Jeremiah will even talk about it in the, the sense that we turn away in our sins to these cisterns that have holes in them, that water runs out. And we've turned away from the living water. Speaking of God, the only one that can satisfy our soul. 
all throughout the Old Testament, it talks about thirst as a picture of being separated or distanced from God. Now, why I believe that that's what Jesus is claiming here when he makes the statement, I thirst, is because think, up to this point, what Christ has been through. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's had a crown of thorns placed on his head. People punched him and said, hey, prophesy who hit you. All of these things that happened, they've drove nails through his hands, and yet he has not said one word. Scripture even says he opened not his mouth. And yet, here, right before he dies, he says, I thirst. I just don't think... That Christ said, I thirst in this moment just because there was a physical portion that he just needed something to drink. He didn't complain about any of these other things. He didn't open up his mouth to say anything in any of these other areas. But now he speaks, I thirst. I think there's something much greater than just water that he wants for his lips. I believe that he's understanding that he is being separated from God the Father. That's why in other Gospels it tells us where he cries out and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the separation that our sin deserves. And Christ is taking it on the cross. This is what's happening. He's being separated. If you were to look at everything else that happened to Christ, those were like mosquito bites compared to being separated from his Father. So he cries out, He's separated from his Father. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what our sin deserves. We have to understand this bad news. We have to understand what our sin deserves in order to see the good news. Some of us hear all of this. Let's just be honest. Within our heart, within our soul, we're like, man, I didn't realize my sin was that bad. I still don't feel like my sin is that bad. Does my sin really deserve all of that, all this curse, this costly curse you're talking about? Is that really what my sin deserves? Does it feel like it? And I believe it's because we've taken our sin and we've made sin so simple. And we're like, well, all sin is is just a moral right and wrong. And it is that, but it's certainly much more than that. We think, really? Is, is my sin of morality, of choosing the wrong things to the right thing, worth all of this? We have to understand the depths of our sin. We have to understand what sin really is in order for us to understand why this had to happen to rescue and redeem us. And I love how John Piper describes sin. This is the definition, and it's a long definition, but it's a great one. This is how John Piper talks about sin. He says, what is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. It's the holiness of God not reverenced. It's the greatness of God not admired. It's the power of God not praised. It's the truth of God not sought. It's the wisdom of God not esteemed. It's the beauty of God not treasured. It's the goodness of God not savored. Our sin is the faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. Our sin is the justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. The person of God, not loved. This is what sin is. 
When we look at our life and we start to evaluate our sin, not as a necessarily moral right or wrong, but us choosing ourselves over the glory of God or trusting in ourselves more than trusting in the faithfulness of God. This is what our sin is. This is what we're called to repent of. This is what we're called to turn from, that we could find life. Now, we read this passage in the cross, we can look at it and say, that's intimidating. Or we can look and say, well, this is an invitation. Christ went to the cross in order to provide us a way that we could be forgiven of this sin. Scripture tells us that he literally became the curse for our sin in our place. This is what the invitation is. When we look to the cross, we have to understand our sin, but also our invitation to come and repent and believe that we could be forgiven. Now notice Pilate and how he responds to the crucifixion, how he responds to Jesus. Because I believe as I read this, how Pilate responds to Christ is how many churches here in the South would talk about and respond to Christ. We would look at Jesus and say, he's a good man. This is a good guy. We might actually hear Jesus' teachings and some of the things that Jesus said, and we're like, yeah, don't disagree with that that much. There are some people within our church, within churches here in the South, that maybe would say something similar to even what Pilate says. Hey, I, I believe he's even the king of the Jews. I believe Pilate believes that. He wrote it, and when they come back, and they're like, no, 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 you need to say he said this. He's like, no, what I've written is what I've written. King of the Jews. I think Pilate believes that, but he doesn't believe in that. You see the difference? I think he believes, man, he's a guilt-free person. Jesus was innocent. I believe that he says, well, yeah, he is the king of the Jews. This is who Jesus is. And yet he never believes in him. I've heard people tell me, if I could just talk to Jesus, if I could just sit down with Jesus and have a conversation with him, then maybe I would believe in him. Pilate did. And it didn't make him believe in him. Pilate understood the kingship of Christ, and yet he didn't bow the knee to worship him. So be careful. Be careful you're not just around Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, hearing Jesus teach through his word and then be like, yeah, he's a good guy. Instead, make that decision to bow the knee to him so that he can become the curse for your sin in your place. Now, for many of us, the reason why we follow the, the path of Pilate is because we're afraid, just like he was afraid. He, come, he brings Jesus out. He's like, hey, guys, Jesus is innocent. You know, we've, we've flogged him. We've beat him. Like, let's just kind of move on. And they're like, no, crucify him. He's saying he's the son of God. And did you see in verse 8? It says he was even more afraid. Pilate was afraid already. He's afraid of the people. He's afraid of losing his power. He's afraid of maybe possibly being put to death for letting Jesus go. He's afraid, and now he's even more afraid in this moment. And this is what keeps him from bowing the knee to Christ. This is what keeps him from placing the faith in the one true God. How about you? 
How about you? Are you afraid of what you might lose if you bow the knee to Christ? Are you afraid of what others might think about you if you believe in him? Oh, may we fear the curse of our sin much, much more than the thoughts of man. Much, much more than the thoughts of man. For our sin deserves shame. Our sin deserves death. This is what our sin deserves, separation from God for eternity. But for those of us that look to Christ, we can have hope. We can have hope. And that's what we find in the second half of this passage. We find the costly curse of sin at the very beginning, but then we find the rich grace of our Savior towards the end of this. We see that the rich grace of Jesus is being poured out at the cross, at the crucifixion. And I love it. We see the rich grace of God through the words, it is finished. It is finished. This is the rich grace that cares about our eternal life. Cares about our eternal life. Jesus hangs on the cross and his last words that are recorded is, it is finished. I love this phrase. It's finished. In the original language that Jesus would have spoke, it was just one word, to telestos. One word to say, it is finished. See, our translation makes it seem passive. He's just kind of giving up. I've reached the finish line. It is finished. And go. But that word to telestos at that time carried a much deeper weight than what we think of. This word to telestos is an accounting term. When somebody would pay off a debt, they would literally write to telestos across that paper. Archaeologists have found documents from the first century, banking documents that have that word written on it, to telestos. It is paid in full. It is done. And that's what Jesus is saying at the cross. He's not giving up and be like, oh, I've reached the finish line. No, he's screaming from the cross, it is done. I have paid their sin debt. It is finished. It is finished. That's what he's screaming out in this moment. That's what gives us encouragement. This is the grace that he's pouring out when he says this. It is finished. But Jesus doesn't just care about your, your eternal life. Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, doesn't just say, well, I care about your eternal life, so I've paid that debt. Jesus also cares about our everyday life, and we see that grace at the cross as well. And why shouldn't he? Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? He cares about our eternal life, and he offers that invitation when he says, It is finished. We also see in this passage that he cares about our everyday life. Did you notice that? Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he looks down and who does he see? Verses 26 and 27. He sees his mom. Now, pay attention to this. It would be quite an understatement to say that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is a little busy. Okay? He's a little busy at this time. It's an understatement to say that he probably has some other things on his mind as he's hanging on the cross and dying for the sins of the world. 
and he looks out at the people he loves, and he sees their temporary and immediate needs, and they're important to him. They're important to him. He looks at the disciple John, and he says, I want you to care for my mom. I want you to care for Mary. He knows the needs of Mary. They didn't have social security at this time. There were no nursing homes. There's no pensions. So he looks at a widowed elderly mother. He wants to make sure she's taken care of. Here's why I tell you that. Some of you think that nobody notices and nobody cares about your struggles in your life. Nobody cares about the hurt and the pain that you're going through. And you need to understand that Jesus sees you. He sees you. He sees your pain. He sees your struggle. And he loves you. And pours out his grace to you. Jesus cares, yes, about your eternal life as he hangs on the cross. But he also cares about your everyday life. This is what John is showing us. This is what John wants us to believe. He wants us to believe. Look a few more verses down. I didn't read this, but look at verse 35. John is writing and he's saying, he who saw all this is born witness. Him. He's like, I've seen it all. This testimony is true. And I, and I know that I'm telling the truth because I've seen it with my own eyes. Now why does he tell us in thir- verse 35, he wrote all this down. That you also may believe. That you may believe. And I hope as we're getting towards the end of John, you're getting exhausted and you're getting tired of me saying that John wrote this for you to believe. Because he did. <laughs> and every story, every narrative, John ends with this, I want you to see this so that you believe in him. To believe in him. John wrote this so that you believe that it is finished. And for many of us, we don't believe that. We might have heard that, but we truly aren't believing that in this moment. And the reason why is because we have guilt and shame that we carry around, continue to beat ourselves up and flog ourselves because of our sin. Because we think if I beat myself up enough, then maybe God will pity me. And maybe others will pity me. If you're doing that, you're not trusting that the work is done, that it is finished. It's finished. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to try to earn God's pity. He's already given it to you through the cross. It's not have to be earned. It's given as a gift. And others of us are the opposite extreme. We don't believe it is finished. We feel like we still have to work for our salvation. We still have to be good enough. We have to be a good moral person. And then when I'm good enough, maybe the church will receive me. And if I'm a good enough person, then then maybe God will receive me. That is not what the gospel is. The gospel is it is finished. The work is done. Christ did the work on the cross. He became the curse of our sin in our place. It is finished. So now we get to rest. We get to rest in Christ. That's why Jesus says, come to me. You who are weary, and I will give you rest. This is different from any other religion in the world. When Buddha died, his last words, according to tradition, were strive without ceasing. But the last words of Christ are, don't you dare strive. I've done all that is necessary. It is finished. May we look to the finished work of Christ today and believe, and as we believe, we will live. This is the good news of the gospel for us. Bow your heads with me.
Lord, we thank you that at the cross you paid it all. You said it is finished. And Lord, I pray for the person in the room or the person online that has heard this word and has maybe fallen into the category of Pilate for so many years of thinking of Jesus as a good man or an innocent person, a good teacher, and yet not bowing the knee. Today, Christ would say to you, look at this invitation to believe. Look to the cross and bow the knee. Don't just say that I'm the king, but live your life as I am the king. As you pray to him, then you have to know and understand that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And this is exactly what Jesus does. This is why he went to the cross. Not just to to die for you, but to die instead of you. That if you confess your sins and believe that he is Lord, he will save you. His death is enough. You don't have to clean yourself up in order to come to him. He has done all of the work and made the way so you could come. And so Christ, I pray for those people that today would be that day where they find salvation. Today would be the day they rejoice as they pray to you and receive you as their Lord and Savior, the one who came to die for them. And may they worship you every day of their life for all of eternity. And for the others of us who have trusted and believed in you, who still war and struggle and battle with sin, Lord, I pray that we would remember the truth that it is finished. It is finished. That you have won the war, and so may we look to you as we go through our daily battles and we war against sin. May we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, trusting that what you started, you will complete to the glory of your name. Lord, you are worthy of it, and we praise you for being the one who came in our place and died for us. It's to the glory of your name we ask. Amen. Church, with this hope, that Christ has given us through the cross. Let's stand now and let's sing to him.